choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 275 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Minimizing Power, Part 2. Continuing from the previous episode, Jim Lovell opened his eyes and glanced out his window at the gray-white plastery moon that was now less than 40,000 miles away nearly filling his triangular porthole. According to the original flight plan, today was the day that he and Fred Hayes were supposed to land on the moon. Of course, that was not going to happen. In fact, Lovell doubted he would ever land on the moon. He had already been in the vicinity of the moon twice, and he didn't think he would get a third chance. Even worse, Lovell questioned that if he, Swaggart, and Hayes did not make it home, would anyone travel to the moon again? Fredo, Lovell said, turning to Hayes, I'm afraid this is going to be the last moon mission for a long time. So I'm afraid this is going to be the last moon mission for a long time. With Aquarius's microphones switched to Vox, Lovell's observation was transmitted straight into the heart of mission control and, from there, out into the world. Glenn Lunny, still on duty as the flight director, was barely paying attention when Jim Lovell made his prediction about the future of lunar exploration. It was a rare moment in any flight when the man who ran the mission did not have at least one ear cocked to the conversations between his astronaut and his Capcom. But with the static on the air-to-ground loop and the traffic running heavy on the flight director's loop, Lunny had to trust Capcom, Joe Kerwin, to handle the ship-to-shore messages alone. Most of the other men at the other consoles had more freedom to listen in on Kerwin's loop, including PAO Terry White. White, along with everyone else in Mission Control and the nation, heard Lovell's remark and along with everyone else in NASA, was jolted by it. For an agency whose lifeblood was funding and whose funding relied on good public relations, this was much more than an accidental swear word. This was a calmly, coldly expressed statement of doubt. Doubt in the mission, doubt in the program, doubt in the agency itself. For NASA, it was profanity of the highest order. Joe Kerwin, a Capcom with otherwise good instincts, reacted to Lovell's inadvertently public remark by ignoring it. He said nothing. Hoping not to draw attention to the comment, he allowed it to go wholly unacknowledged. Instead, however, it hung heavy in the air, 
taking on more and more meaning with each passing second. White allowed the silence to continue for several interminable minutes and then jumped into the breach. This is Apollo Control at 68 hours, 13 minutes. Flight Director Glenn Lunny and four of his flight controllers are on their way now to Building 1 for the news conference. Uh, Glenn Lunny will be Tom Weichel, the retrofire officer, Clint Burton, Ecom, Hal Loden, Control, and Merlin Merritt, Telmu. In the Public Affairs Building at the Manned Spacecraft Center, NASA welcomed reporters with open arms. But up until now, the press, for the most part, had not been accepting the invitation. Over the past 10 hours, things had changed. Beginning with the first reports of the accident, dozens of TV, radio, and print reporters who had been patching together their coverage from stories sent over the wire service began showing up at the Space Center's doorstep, requesting clearance and credentials and asking for access to whatever press events NASA now planned to hold. The public affairs officers welcomed the reporters warmly, issued them security badges, handed them press kits, and showed them to the auditorium, where they were free to choose places to sit among the rapidly filling desk. As the day dawned in Houston, the public affairs auditorium was being readied for flight director Lunny. Public affairs director Brian Duff was in mission control. Like the newly plugged-in pool reporters in the VIP gallery, the public affairs officers had their own consoles with which they, too, could monitor the flight. Unlike the pool reporters, their console was down on the floor of mission control itself, in the left-hand corner of the fourth and last row. And unlike the pool reporters, the public affairs officers could use their consoles to do more than simply call up data and eavesdrop on conversations. Throughout the flight, the officer on duty would patch the air-to-ground channel and provide a running commentary of what was being discussed, translating the technical chatter for the general public. It was this communications feed with the voices of Capcom and the astronauts overlaid with the voices of the public affairs commentator that would be sent to the networks and broadcast to the nation. Today, the soothing public affairs officer's voice would be more important than it had ever been, and Duff was on hand behind the console to make sure things went well. This is Apollo Control. We'll attempt to summarize for you some of the uh, discussions that have been going on here. We're still leaning toward the uh, burn at Parasynthian plus two hours. That's the uh, descent propulsion system burn at uh, 79 hours, 27 minutes, 850 feet per second. As an option, uh, a number of people are taking a look at a, uh, what is being termed a super fast return. Would require a a larger burn at Parasynthian plus an hour and a half. This would uh, bring us to a splash time of 118 hours, 
versus 142 hours. However, to uh, accomplish this, we would have to jettison the service module. The preliminary data indicates that we may have a thermal problem on the way back without the service module. There are some, also some other aspects that uh, need to be looked into. This, uh, this option is being held open and uh, is being worked and will be for the next several hours. Terry White's public relations reflexes were good. The words he chose were not just soothing prattle designed to distract listeners at home. Rather, they also served as a sort of plea to the media. Bear with us, they said. Work with us. We heard the same thing you did, and we'll be happy to talk to you about it. Just give us a chance to discuss it together before you put it out in print. When Terry White ended his commentary, he continued listening in to the loop, but Aquarius was becoming unreadable. At about T plus 68 hours 26 minutes, Capcom could be heard saying, Roger, Jim, uh, we uh, show you on, uh, on telemetry, looks solid at the, uh, at the new attitude. Just uh, by way of information, uh, the uh, latest tracking data shows the Parasynthian holding uh, somewhere above 136 miles, and uh, the pad you have is uh, still good, over. Capcom's message was comprehensible on the ground side, but the voices coming down from Apollo 13 were a different matter. It was impossible to determine who answered mission control, his voice seemed to be disintegrating into loud crackles across the expanse of space. Okay, and uh, we wonder whether you've uh, uh, attempted to uh, get drinking water out of the uh, command module Pody tank yet. Is, uh, is that going all right, or do you have any questions on it? Over A long period of hissing noise filled the line as the Inco, down on the second row, consulted with his backroom. The problem was tiresome, but not life-threatening. At the public affairs console, however, Duff was uneasy. Across the country, most viewers were turning on their televisions for the first time since hearing of the accident last night, and the deterioration in communications from the sick power-poor ship was alarming. He let this hissing play out for a minute or so, then nudged White and said, Feel, talk, repeat yourself if you have to, but don't go silent. Silence sounds like we've gone dead altogether. We expect uh, communications to Im improve a little bit after S4B impact uh, on the lunar surface. Uh, the uh, S4B frequency is giving us a little trouble with this communications. Uh, after the impact, we, we will not have to turn the transponder in the, com in the spacecraft off uh, during handovers between tracking stations. In the cockpit of the distant and drifting Aquarius, Jim Lovell was at least as concerned about his air-to-ground communications as Brian Duff was but for different reasons. 
For all Terry White's attempts at on-air candor, he had only told part of the story. It was true that the empty third stage of the Saturn V booster hurtling toward an impact on the moon where it was supposed to jolt the seismometer left behind by Apollo 12 was playing havoc with Aquarius's radio. The Saturn S-4B and the limb did transmit on the same frequency, but since the lunar module was not intended to be fired up and flying free until after the booster had made its crash landing, radio interference between the two vehicles never seemed as if it would be a problem. Now, with Aquarius handling all the voice communications between the crew and the Earth, and the S-4B transmitting its telemetry as well, air-to-ground conversation was being periodically garbled. Making matters worse, the backup communication systems, which ordinarily could cut through some of the clutter, were not operating as they should. As soon as the descent engine had been shut down after the free return burn, NASA sent the crew orders to switch off some of their non-essential equipment in order to conserve energy until the PC plus two burn of the LIMS descent engine later that night. Most of the LIMS antennas and much of its secondary communications hardware were among the systems sacrificed, and as each circuit breaker controlling the selected equipment was taken offline, the air-to-ground communications deteriorated more and more. By the time all the switch throwing was complete, Lovell found himself operating on but a single antenna at a time continually switching to whichever one seemed to be carrying the clearest signal and banking his spacecraft around to give it the clearest shot at Earth. Back at Mission Control, since the moment the pre-dawn free return burn was completed, the men in the control room had been concentrating most of their energy on one thing, the PC plus two burn, scheduled for 17 hours later. While Lunny's team was on console, Gold Team Flight Director Gerald Griffin and Maroon Team Flight Director Milt Windler had overseen the effort in Mission Control and, by any measure, managed to accomplish a remarkable amount in a very short time. Of course, Krantz was occupied with his Tiger Team, also devising a get-home maneuver for PC Plus 2, his next set of decisions involved determining how aggressively to pursue a rapid return to Earth. The most aggressive option would cut 24 hours off the return journey, but it would require jettisoning the damaged service module and using all of the lunar module descent propellants. Several other options were available, and there were team members who were advocates of each option. Krantz knew he and Lunny would be turned to for the final decision. During this time, Chris Kraft supported the flight directors by running interference with the NASA managers. During a crisis, every boss wants to get in on the act, encouraging the managers to think like flight directors for a few hours, kept them out of the hair of the flight directors, and updated on the plans everyone was working on. Of course, before the burn, all the flight directors would meet informally and discuss their decisions before taking it to management. The last thing the flight directors wanted to do was let the bosses think 
there was any real disagreement within the group. Back upstairs in mission control, the two off-duty flight directors, Griffin and Windler, continued patrolling the control room, stopping at each console, grilling the men they found there, and collecting whatever ideas they had for the long, complicated burn of a lunar module engine with a 63,000-pound command service module attached. At most of the consoles, the black team members on duty were not alone, but were attended by the gold and maroon team members who worked the same station, and who had been showing up throughout the night. Occasionally, the black team member, behind whose chair and out of whose earshot the conversations were supposed to be taking place, would overhear a scrap of the discussion, cover his microphone, and spin around in his seat and correct something the men behind him were saying, or add a technical suggestion of his own. The controller station impromptu meetings continued from 3 a.m. to 7 a.m., and by the time the Tuesday morning controllers were ready to relieve the Monday night crew, Griffin and Windler had sketched out three different PC Plus 2 scenarios, none of which they knew was perfect, but all of which would bring the crew home faster than the trajectory they were on now. As Public Affairs Director Brian Duff planned his early morning press conference, Glenn Lunny put in his last hour on the console, and Fred Hayes arose from his sleepless night. Griffin and Windler sat wearily in the aisle next to the flight director's station. Behind them, Chris Kraft approached and laid a hand on each of their shoulders. The two men turned around. What kind of burn have we got? Kraft asked. Do we know how we want to proceed with this? We've got some pretty good ideas, Griffin said. As far as what we can see, we've got three options, any of which would help out a lot. Will they be ready to go in 12 hours? Kraft asked. They should be, Griffin said. Would you be ready to talk about them in an hour? Asked Kraft. What do you mean? Wendler asked. Some people are going to be getting together to discuss all this in the viewing room, and we're going to have to be able to explain things to them as best we can, replied Kraft. Well, what people, Chris? Griffin asked. The bosses. Gilruth, Lowe, McDivitt, Payne, most of the guys at that level, Kraft said. Plus, you guys, Deke, Gene, and whoever else you think we might need. Probably a couple dozen people in all. Griffin was surprised. Gilruth, of course, was Bob Gilruth, director of the Manned Spacecraft Center. Lowe was George Lowe, the director of spacecraft and flight missions. Payne was Thomas Payne, the NASA administrator himself. Bringing men like Deke Slayton, Chris Kraft, McDivitt, and Krantz, and the rest of the flight directors together for a meeting in mission control was one thing. During a mission, people on that rung of the organizational ladder met all the time in and around the control room to discuss various problems and procedures. But the Gilruths, Lowe's, and Paynes, and other men on the upper rungs were rarely part of the conferences. These were the big picture people, 
the people who relied on Krantz, Kraft, and the rest to run the individual missions while they ran the program as a whole. Bringing these men into mission control for a caucus in a soundproof, glassed-in enclosure of the VIP gallery was unprecedented. It was a gathering of the Council of Agency Elders, the NASA equivalent of a joint session of Congress, and it would take place in full view of an audience of controllers who had never seen so much NASA bosses in one place before. This is going to happen in an hour, Griffin said. Less than an hour, Kraft said, and before it does, I want to meet with all flight directors to make sure we've got our ducks in a line. Pull Glenn Lunny off console and let's go find a place to talk. Krantz is downstairs with his Tiger team, Wendler said. You want us to get him too? No, I don't want to disturb him until it's necessary. Let him keep working on the consumables until the meeting itself. Then we'll bring him up, said Kraft. Griffin and Wendler nudged Lunny told him Kraft needed him, and the black teen flight director turned his console over to his assistant and followed the three men to a staff support room. When they got there, Kraft closed the door, sat and inclined his head wordlessly to his controllers, inviting them to tell him what they knew. Lunny knew little more than Kraft did, so he deferred to Griffin, who began to walk Kraft through the three burns that they had just finished developing. Kraft did not need the basic science explained to him. He knew the language of the Fidos and Guidos and the flight directors who oversaw them. What he really wanted was the consequences of each maneuver, what the risks were, what the advantages were, how each one might affect the odds of bringing his astronauts back alive. Griffin spoke candidly and economically, and Kraft listened nodding occasionally, but saying nothing. When the flight director was done, Kraft went to work raising questions, raising objections, poking at Griffin's projections, challenging his estimates, and on the whole, trying to anticipate the grilling that would be forthcoming from the men in the VIP room. Griffin and Wendler answered Kraft's concerns as best they could, and Lunny, hearing most of this for the first time, nodded in agreement. Finally, after an hour, Kraft seemed satisfied, opened the door, and prepared to lead his group over to the viewing gallery. Before he could, however, Griffin stopped him. You know, Chris, I'd sure feel more comfortable if we all weren't going in there alone. Who else do you need? Kraft asked. Well, it's my Fido and Retro who crunched all this data. Go get them, Kraft said, and get Gene, too. When everyone arrived at the VIP area, Kraft wasted little time getting things started. In about 12 hours, he began, we're going to need to execute our PC plus two burn. Our objective will be to get the crew home as fast as possible while stretching our consumables as far as possible. The flight directors have come up with some possible burns and since it's Jerry's team that worked out so many of the numbers, I'll let him explain. Griffin stepped forward and began to describe slowly and deliberately the procedures he had just gone over much more quickly with Kraft. As Griffin explained it, 
it became obvious the most precious consumable Apollo 13 had to work with was not oxygen or power or lithium hydroxide. It was time. Get back to Earth quickly enough, and the problems with all the other consumables would take care of themselves. The obvious answer, then, was to burn the limb's descent engine at full throttle for as long as the fuel supply would allow, increasing the ship's velocity until it could be increased no more. But the obvious answer was not necessarily the best answer. Burning the engine until it ran dry would leave almost no fuel for subsequent mid-course corrections, which might well be needed. The ship would be covering more than a quarter million miles, and the slightest error in the initial trajectory would thus be magnified many times over. The ascent stage of the lunar module did have an engine of its own, and in an emergency, it could always be fired. But in order to do so, the crew would have to jettison the descent stage first, and it was the descent stage that contained most of the lander's batteries and oxygen tanks. The length and strength of the burn, Griffin went on, would determine not only the crew's fuel reserves and their transit time back to Earth, but what body of water they would splash down in. With only some of the Earth's oceans approachable from space, and only one of those oceans, the Pacific, equipped with adequate recovery vessels, the choices were limited. The three different maneuvers Griffin and Wendler had come up with would address these problems in three different ways. The first burn, Griffin explained, would be a long one, pushing the descent throttle all the way to the full position. Lovell would leave it there for almost six minutes before shutting the engine down. This maneuver, which for simplicity's sake Griffin called the superfast burn, would put the crew down in the Atlantic Ocean on Thursday morning just 36 hours from the scheduled PC plus 2 time later that night. Such an early return would be well within even the most pessimistic estimates of the limb's projected lifetime, and for that reason alone was very attractive. But the superfast burn would also come at a price. Not only would it use an enormous amount of fuel and aim the astronauts toward a patch of ocean, where the Navy had not yet so much as a fishing trawler presently stationed, it would also require them to make the entire trip home without a key part of their spacecraft. In order to reduce the mass of the dock ships enough to make such a go-for-broke maneuver effective, Lovell would have to jettison the now useless service module. To be sure, Griffin explained, the flight directors did not harbor any illusions that this presumably blast-damaged part of the ship could be brought back to life, but they were nevertheless reluctant to part with it. The surface module fit snugly over the base of the command module, protecting the heat shield, which in turn would protect the crew during their re-entry. No one had ever conducted experiments to find out what would happen to a heat shield that had spent a day and a half in the deep freeze of space, and now might not be the time to run the test. Even if an ordinary heat shield could survive such frigid conditions, it was possible that Apollo 13's was not ordinary. If the accident had put even a hairline crack in the shield, the ultra-low temperatures of space could split it wide open. 
Still, if consumables prove to be an insurmountable problem, the super-fast return might be worth considering. The next burn would be a little slower than the super-fast burn, conserving some fuel while adding only a few hours to the homeward trip. The biggest advantage of this procedure was that the added transit time would allow the Earth to make another quarter turn, permitting a splashdown in the Pacific. The biggest disadvantage was that like the high-speed return, this medium-speed burn would also require jettisoning of the service module. The final burn option was to keep Odyssey's service module in place. Lovell would fire Aquarius's descent engine for only four and a half minutes and only part of that time at full throttle. This more modest maneuver would aim the crew for a splashdown in the Pacific. However, it would get them there not midday Thursday, but midday Friday, more than three days from now, are only 10 hours faster than they would have arrived without any PC plus 2 burn at all. If the heat shield and the recovery were the only considerations, Griffin concluded this burn would certainly be the way to go. But when consumables were figured into the equation, things could get a little sticky. Griffin finished his presentation and stepped back to allow for questions. Instantly, hands went up. Someone wanted to know the likelihood that the heat shield was damaged. Probably low, Griffin answered, but if there was a crack, the probability of losing the crew could be 100%. Someone asked how far could the consumables be stretched. Too early to tell at the moment, Griffin admitted. For nearly an hour, the men in the room debated their options as Kraft and his crew of flight directors watched. Deke Slayton, as the chief astronaut, argued strongly for the fastest burn, and several other voices soon joined his. But more numerous and soon overwhelming were the voices arguing for the slowest burn. Yes, consumables were going to be a problem, but Krantz's Tiger team was working on that. Kraft and his flight directors let the arguments play out and watched, satisfied, as the men in the room settled on the slowest alternative. It was the choice of the flight directors themselves, and now, as the arguments begin to gel into a consensus, Chris Kraft transformed this consensus into a decision. So it's agreed, he summed up. At 79 hours and 27 minutes, there will be an 850 foot per second burn for four and a half minutes, aiming for a Pacific splash at 142 hours. If all goes well, Apollo 13 will be home by Friday afternoon. The men in the room nodded and almost simultaneously rose and began to move toward the doors. Jerry Griffin turned to Lunny and said, What do you say we quit talking about this thing and go see if we can do it? Salutations from Indianapolis. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 275 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 13, Minimizing Power, Part 2. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I would like to recognize my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? You can find them by searching for Space Rocket History Archive. The first 98 episodes are there. Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. 
Thanks, Patreon donors who honored your pledge this month. Let's go for 100% retention. Okay, I have just a few comments about this week's episode. First, my sources were the same as last week. How many times do you think the Vox switch caused problems for astronauts? Lovell made that comment that if Apollo 13 didn't make it home, there wouldn't be another moon mission for a long time. Do you think 13 would have been the last one for many years? I personally don't. To me, stopping with a failed mission would not be a good public relations move, and it would have made the U.S. seem weaker to the world, not willing to move forward after a failure. Remember, during this time, it was still a battle of ideologies between the Soviets and the U.S., between communism and capitalism, and the U.S. wanted to keep a strong reputation with other countries in the world. So I don't agree with Lovell on this point, and thankfully, it never came up. What did you think of the alternative methods of getting back home from the moon? To me, the most interesting one I thought was the super burn. Separate the service module, fire the descent engine on the lunar module, and if necessary, use the ascent stage engine. That would have been interesting to to see that plan play out. But of course, NASA chose the right plan, and there's no question about that. It would just been fun to see it. I started to leave out the public relations information like uh, Patrick Duff and all of his stuff. Uh, But I decided to to keep it in because it was important to NASA. Public relations and NASA is very important. So I left it in for this mission, although to me it wasn't very exciting. Okay, I have posted some pictures on the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. We were pleased to receive donations to support the podcast from Robert M., from Texas sent in another donation and moved to the Apollo level with rocket, moon, and satellite emojis. Kyle M. donated at the Soyuz level. Lawrence W. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Gemini level with rocket emoji. Eddie M. from Virginia donated at the Sputnik level and earned his moon emoji. Adam D. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Gemini level. Our Patreon totals are now 197 with a goal of reaching 218 before the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the Space Rocket History Podcast. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation, or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. For those of you who have already donated in 2018, I certainly appreciate it. We're giving away the new official SRH logo magnet, which is 3 inches in diameter, round, and will stick to Moe's refrigerators. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. Then she put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Mark Wittick. Mark, if you will give me an email and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I will try to get episode 276 out by next Thursday. So long for now.